You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I was really glad to get to jump in to the series, Profiles in Failure. So the point of this class, as far as I understand it, is to highlight some folks from our biblical narrative and look at their stories in light of their failures instead of their successes. So why would we want to focus on people's failures? Um, Wouldn't it just seem a lot more helpful to look at um, these guys' successes and see what we can learn from them? Now, most of us can probably remember some teaching um, for at least some part of our our Christian education that followed that model, right? Like Moses led the Israelites, be a leader like Moses. Or David was brave when he stood up to Goliath, be brave like David. Or the Proverbs 31 woman is the total package, be the Proverbs 31 woman. I totally get that's not a real person, but you know what I'm saying. So hopefully you can see the problem with this. Um, We aren't always going to lead well, and we're not always going to be brave, and we certainly aren't going to be perfect. These are wonderful attributes and certainly commendable, but if we only look at the good parts of the story, sorry y'all, the praiseworthy segments of these biblical characters' lives, we risk falling into a performance-based faith believing that our credibility as a believer in Christ has more to do with our accomplishments than what he has accomplished for us. We risk missing the point that the source of Moses and David and the Proverbs 31 woman, if she were real, of their noteworthy qualities is God and are all the fruit of the Lord's relationship with them. Now, it's important for us to look at the failures in the Bible. Well, because they're in there. The failures are in the Bible. Their failures are part of our narrative of the history of God's people, and all of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So, we know the Lord intends for us to learn from these less than stellar moments in his people's lives. In these accounts, we see people just like us, who do not get it right all the time, and sometimes get it so horribly wrong, just like us. But most importantly, in looking at the parts of their stories they would never share on social media, the stories that would likely cause them to be canceled, we see the abundant and amazing strength of our God. When these folks are at their lowest, We see the Lord do some of his greatest work, rescuing, redeeming, and restoring those who do not deserve it and have done nothing to earn it. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a far more restful spot for me than the performance camp. So thank God that he included the whole story and not just the pretty bits. That's a yoke too heavy to bear. Instead, we get a glimpse into the lives of regular people who are a mixed bag just like us. And we get a good look at the character of God, whose power is made perfect in weakness. So, so far, from what I understand, you've heard about Jonah and Abraham and Jacob and John Mark, Elijah and Peter, at perhaps their cringiest moments and how the Lord met them in their cringe, rescued, 
restored and redeemed them in it. So today we're going to look at Hezekiah. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 10, which would not seem like an obvious choice, um, but I do think that it fits with our lesson well. So this is 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The word of the Lord. All right, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father and Almighty God, um, thank you for bringing us to the beginning of this day. Lord, I pray now that um, you would open our ears to hear your word, that you would open our eyes to see your beauty, and that you would soften our hearts to receive what you have for us today and um, your story through your servant Hezekiah. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are going to talk about Hezekiah today. Hezekiah was a king of the southern kingdom of Judah from about 715 to 686 BC. His story is told in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and four chapters of Isaiah, um, who was one of the main prophets of Hezekiah's day. So here's what the scripture tells us about Hezekiah. 2 Kings 18 tells us, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah. That's pretty high praise. Some three centuries had elapsed since the, king, the reign of King David, the man after God's own heart. No king since David had set his mind to follow God like Hezekiah, who did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. More zealous for the Lord than any predecessor, Hezekiah had a close relationship with God 
He knew of God's past acts on behalf of his people and believed in God's everyday involvement in the lives of his people. Now, this was particularly amazing when you considered Hezekiah's DNA. Hezekiah's predecessor was his father, Ahaz, who was one of Judah's most evil and despicable kings, under whose reign pagan worship and heinous acts of human sacrifice were the norm. Ahaz actively ignored Isaiah's warnings and rebelled against the Lord by pridefully refusing the sign of Emmanuel. But when Hezekiah came to the throne, he immediately worked to turn things around, to restore Judah to the nation the Lord intended it to be. Hezekiah destroyed all of the pagan temples, idols, and altars, and completely cleaned and reopened the temple in Jerusalem. He reinstated the Levitical priesthood and reinstituted Passover as a national holiday. Revival came to Judah under Hezekiah's reign. Hezekiah did all of this with meticulous and prayerful determination to do everything according to God's will and God's requirements. When faced with an incredible threat of invasion by the Assyrians, we read in 2 Kings that as soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Facing further threats from the king's field commander, Hezekiah went up to the throne, uh, went up to the house of the Lord and spread the letter before the Lord. And Hezekiah prays this beautiful, amazing prayer that is filled with praise of the Lord rather than supplications for protection military strength, or a great victory for himself. And when he concludes, finally asking the Lord to save Judah, Hezekiah asks that Judah will be saved, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Faced with devastation and exile, Hezekiah turns not to military strategists, but to the Lord, asking for his intervention for God's own sake, for the sake of the Lord's reputation among the nations, for the sake of all who might come to faith in the one true God. What a leader, what a faithful king. And scripture tells us that because Hezekiah put God first in everything he did, the Lord prospered him. Hezekiah is courageous, he's clever, but most importantly, he's faithful. And he knows where his courage and his cleverness come from. He knows that his every success, every victory is from the Lord. Hezekiah was an apple that fell very far from the tree. Now during the time of his Assyria's assault on Judah, Hezekiah becomes very ill, an illness from which Isaiah explains Hezekiah will not recover. Hezekiah's response, he prays, pleading for the Lord's mercy based on his integrity. Now, O Lord, Hezekiah prays, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. Now, this kind of prayer might sound weird to us. Um, it might sound weird to our this side of the cross, not weighing our merits, but pardoning our offenses, gospel of grace antenna, right? He's praying to the Lord on the basis of his own integrity. But we see prayers like this throughout the Old Testament. Consider David's prayer in Psalm 26. 
Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. We see prayers like this all the time in the Old Testament in response to the blessings and curses promised by God on the basis of the obedience or disobedience of his people. So Hezekiah prays and the Lord responds instantly and promises to heal Hezekiah and add 15 years to Hezekiah's life. And when Hezekiah pushes a step further and asks for a sign that he would know that he's been healed, the Lord readily agrees and even lets Hezekiah have input as to how the sign will come to be. And Hezekiah, being so Hezekiah, chooses the sign that will be the most God-glorifying, that the sun would go backwards 10 steps rather than forward 10 steps, because see, it would be natural for the sun to go forward. People might miss the miracle. But moving backwards would be more noticeable and something that couldn't be explained by science. The sign would unmistakably point to God who alone is able to do the impossible. Now, if you're like me, this is the point where Hezekiah's story either sounds like a fairy tale, too good to be true, or like a kid that's too perfect and likely to get beat up on the playground. Or maybe, as I've been talking, you found yourself thinking, man, I need to be more like Hezekiah. Ugh, do you feel the weight of that? Well, as promised, this class, this series, is not about the heroics of the people of the Bible. As great a leader, as faithful a king as Hezekiah was, like all of us, he was not perfect. My ballet director from years ago would have described Hezekiah's reign this way. He flew well, but landed poorly. So Hezekiah is in this amazing place. The Lord has administered a total and complete defeat of the Assyrian army, healed Hezekiah, and added 15 more years to Hezekiah's life. Not only has all of this glorified the Lord, but would have been an incredible encouragement to Hezekiah's faith and for the people of Judah. This is a moment we can all imagine that Hezekiah was riding high. Now I'm sure you can remember moments like this in your own life, when things were going so well, you almost felt invincible. Well, as my boys were growing up, we often talked about these moments. After a big victory or coming out of a sticky situation well, we would pray in thanksgiving, but also for the Lord's protection. Riding high moments can be an opportunity for temptation to catch us off guard. As St. Paul reminded us in the reading we read earlier, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And that's what we see next for Hezekiah. In 2 Chronicles 32, we read, And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left Hezekiah to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. So Assyria is still the dominant world power here, but Babylon is on the rise and they're planning to stage an uprising against Assyria. The king of Babylon sends these envoys or messengers to ask Hezekiah about the sign, the sun's miraculous movement. Why? Why would the king of Babylon do that? 
Well, they want to ingratiate themselves to Hezekiah. The Babylonians worship the sun. So if their God had done Hezekiah a solid by changing the movement of the sun, they figured they'd better honor Hezekiah too. Also, if Babylon was planning a revolt against Assyria, it only made sense to, bef to befriend the guy whose God put the smackdown on Assyria. And frankly, they were kind of just casing the joint, just kind of checking out all of Hezekiah's assets to see what they might be able to get. So Hezekiah welcomes the envoys like you do. It's his duty to be hospitable, but Hezekiah goes too far. See, Judah is a lowly nation. Hezekiah is flattered by the attention of these up and coming world power, and he works to curry the favor of the cool kids. Hezekiah had a great opportunity here. Hezekiah had a natural opening. The Babylonians came to see him because of the sign and the healing. So Hezekiah could have shared God's mercy to him and his illness with the envoys. He could have witnessed about the one true God. The real treasure here is God, not Hezekiah or the nation or the riches. But Hezekiah in worldly pride chooses the lesser thing. Instead of giving God all the glory, Hezekiah is eager to show off so the messengers will go back and tell the king of Assyria how great a king Hezekiah was. Scripture tells us, and Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. So Hezekiah shows the Babylonians all his stuff. What doesn't Hezekiah show them? What? The temple. The temple. He doesn't show them the temple. He doesn't show them the book of the law. He doesn't show them their worship practices or Isaiah the prophet who like knows everything from God. He doesn't show them God. Hezekiah chose to share his least important, least special, and least valuable assets. Seeking applause from men and ungodly men at that, not God's pleasure. So we see the sin of pride, ingratitude, abuse of gifts, wrong and bad alliances, and a missed opportunity to testify to the faithfulness and greatness of the God of Israel. Hezekiah flew well. He immediately turned to the Lord when faced with the military threat posed by Assyria. He immediately turned to the Lord when faced with a terminal illness. But Hezekiah landed poorly. See, he didn't recognize the more subtle threat of success, popularity, flattery, and pride. Warren Wearsby writes, if Satan cannot succeed as a lion, he comes as a serpent. It's so much easier to recognize, it was so much easier for Hezekiah to recognize his need in the obvious threat of an enemy attack or in his illness than the temptation of prosperity and success. Why is that? I mean, because one of these feels good, right? And don't we do this too? In our distress, we're so quick to turn to the Lord. 
but with the promise of something shiny and attractive, we're so much more likely to rely on our own judgment. So this is a good reminder for us today that after a spiritual high, it's good to be on guard against a spiritual attack. Every time I read the story, I think about Noah, right? I mean, his faithfulness with the ark and all that time on the ark and then everything's wonderful and then what does Noah do? I mean, where do we find him? Yeah, hammered and naked. I mean, right, that he flew well and landed poorly for sure. It's important for us to pray for protection, for God to guard our hearts against pride and any thoughts of our merit giving us that victory. And what happens as a result of Hezekiah's unabashed immodesty? Well, Babylon is the ruin of those who love Babylon. The prophet Isaiah delivers the message from the Lord that all of the treasure Hezekiah boastfully showed the Babylonians will be carted off by them, along with Hezekiah's descendants who will become slaves to the king of Babylon. More than a hundred years will pass before all of this is fulfilled under King Nebuchadnezzar. But God foretells it here through Isaiah so that Hezekiah will know the far-reaching and devastating consequences of his sin. Man, what a shame we're prone to think, right? Hezekiah was doing so great. Why'd he have to go and blow it? Well, we have underestimated human anthropology if we're truly surprised, and if we think this is Hezekiah's only failure. Like David, Hezekiah was mostly a really great king. He was faithful, but not perfect. This is what Samuel warned Israel about. Put your trust in a human king, and he will fail you. Even really great kings still can never be the great king of kings and lord of lords. Hezekiah was declared righteous, not based on his perfection, his getting it right. He was a faithful, very faithful man to be sure, but Hezekiah was declared righteous by God. So then we get to this. After hearing the prophecy of Judah's destruction and exile, Hezekiah gives a response that's as close to repentance as we get in answer to all of this. The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, is what he says to Isaiah. Every word of the Lord is good, and he will bring good out of even the darkest situations. Like David following his great debacle, Hezekiah is accepting the Lord's judgment as just and good. After all, the point of the exile is to bring God's people to repentance, and so they can receive the mercy of the Lord. But then there's this bit. For, Hezekiah thought, why not if there will be peace and security in my days? Now, this sounds pretty awful and selfish, right? It's okay. I won't be around to see it. Hezekiah's <laughs> statement here goes against the grain of ancient Near East thought. See, the thought was that we live on through our families. So it's really important to set your family up for success. But on the other hand, maybe this is Hezekiah letting go of his worldly thinking about immortality. Maybe he's recognizing that eternal life is not caught up in his legacy. Or maybe this truly is Hezekiah saying he just really doesn't care because he doesn't have to deal with it. We don't know. 
This is one of the places in the Bible where God leaves us with some ambiguity. God doesn't answer all of our questions in Scripture. And when he doesn't, it's important for us to ask, what is God saying in the silence? When we don't know, we focus on what we do know. We know that God considered Hezekiah to be righteous, and as a result, God prospered him. We know that God extended Hezekiah's life with great mercy, and we know that the Lord mercifully kept Hezekiah from seeing the evil consequences of his sin or sharing in the suffering caused by it. We know that Hezekiah was one of the best kings of Judah. Because of his faithfulness, we also know that Hezekiah was not perfect. And what a gift that is for us. We know that despite Hezekiah's sin, the Lord had mercy on his faithful servant. God promised to preserve a faithful remnant and so kept his promise that David's line would continue despite lots of evidence to the contrary and would one day bring forth the Messiah who would save us from all the times we forget who has given us all of our successes and all the times we seek human approval more than we seek God. Hezekiah's story reminds us that Jesus Christ is the better David, the only perfect king. Now, do you find yourself thinking, this just all sounds really harsh? I mean, Hezekiah had so much good behavior. Does Hezekiah and, and, and more, the nation of Judah, really deserve all of this? Couldn't God let just this one little thing go? Well, God always calls sin, sin. And he is merciful and just to cleanse his people from all unrighteousness. God is both judge and justifier. To let this one little thing go would make him not a loving God at all. If Hezekiah or any of us was counting on his own righteousness for his salvation, all hope would be lost. This was the problem for the Pharisees, and Jesus will say to them, Be ye therefore perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what is the hope for Hezekiah and his descendants? What is the hope for us? Following Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 39, that looks ahead and foretells Judah's deportation to Babylon, chapter 40 takes a sudden shift and we see Isaiah addressing the people of Judah as they are living in exile. And Isaiah's message to them is one of hope and deliverance. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Deliverance that will come at the hand of God who never forgets his people. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Like me, and like you, Hezekiah was kind of a mixed bag. He was not consistent. But our comfort lies not in the consistency of human leaders, even really good ones like Hezekiah, but in the certainty of the Word of God, which stands forever. And with the coming of Messiah, the Word made flesh, who will tend his flock like a shepherd, and gather the lambs in his arms, who will lay down his life for his sheep and overcome death, rising from the grave to ensure eternal life for his people. This is our hope. But just as we are in a time of waiting, living in the now and not yet, between Jesus' first and second coming, 
the people of Judah will have to wait for the deliverance promised by Isaiah here. But God does give the promise of deliverance to Judah through Isaiah, just as he has given the promise of ultimate deliverance through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. So at the end of the day, Hezekiah's failure is only important because it is his failure that points us to God's grace. Romans 5, verses 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thanks be to God. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.